Welcome to the EMSO Talks podcast. Hi, this is Mark Quant from EMSO's investor relations team in Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm joined by Shakeb Faruqi and Joe Ledbetter from our investment team in London. Joe, Shaq, welcome. You recently wrote a paper discussing carbon emissions, particularly in the emerging markets that we invest in. Why did you choose to write on this topic and why do you think it's a particularly relevant topic today? Shaq, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Mark. Um, so why did we write the paper? Um, as you know, Mark, at MSO, we're actively looking at ways to integrate ESG into our investment process, engage with governments on these issues, and also find new and innovative ways to fund pro-ESG initiatives. The COP26 reinvigorated the push towards zero carbon, and we've seen quite a few EM countries renew and revise their pledges towards lowering their carbon footprint. With that in mind, we wanted to think about what these nationally defined contributions mean. For example, developed markets are generally reducing their CO2 levels, while EMs are still increasing them. But this comes against a starting point where DMs account for a far higher per capita emission load. So with this paper, we wanted to look at the initial conditions to evaluate what the journey looks like and how the Paris Agreement can facilitate this. And ultimately, what does it mean to be Paris aligned? Joe, could you elaborate a little more on the role that you think emerging and developed markets each have to play in reducing carbon emissions? Yeah, sure. Hi, Mark. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's obvious that we all have our own roles to play in reducing carbon emissions, both in developed and emerging markets. You know, in, in developed markets, you know, we have to recognize that the improvement in our standing of living was achieved by industrialization. And, and in the process, we used up a vast majority of the planet's carbon budget. You know, higher incomes and higher carbon emissions go hand in hand. And that means that the US and the EU are overwhelmingly responsible for climate change, both historically and currently. And then in emerging markets, you know, we have to acknowledge that they're trying to balance the resources between stopping climate change with the need for development. You know, these are countries with still huge poverty, large infrastructure gaps that need to be filled. You know, I think there's no doubt that emerging markets want to grow sustainably, but they have to grow. And I think, you know, only a handful of emerging markets are really planning a long-term future dominated by fossil fuels. You know, countries that I look at, such as Kenya, Zambia, Ethiopia, I mean, they already generate half of their power from renewables. And again, that's one of the reasons why we felt we needed to write this paper, because we're just really worried about, you know, how the discourse is trending uh, with regards to these issues, especially with official sector lending. You know, we've seen that rich countries are trying to apply pressure to development finance institutions to cut off development aid and finance for projects which they don't consider green. You know, if you're Mozambique or if you're Senegal and you want to develop your oil and gas reserves using the private sector, forget about it. But then at the same time, the UK is discussing the merits of revitalizing its fracking industry. You know, I saw that the US last year auctioned off 80 million acres of land off the Gulf of Mexico, which is capable of producing a billion barrels of oil and 4.4 trillion cubic feet of gas. You know, it's no wonder that some countries refer to this as green colonialism. There's a stat by the Energy for Growth Hub that calculate that the average African consumes less electricity per year than the American family's refrigerator. And so that's basically the crux of the paper. 
You know, we want to have an honest conversation about the trade-offs that are involved in reducing emissions. And we want to put together an honest framework that will deliver on the Paris Climate Agreement goals without sacrificing the development of the poorest people on the planet. Interesting. So the, the, the paper really spends a lot of time discussing the mechanics for calculating carbon emissions. And I was surprised to, to see that there's really no standard way to do this. So when a country, say, commits to being carbon neutral, it, it could really mean a number of things. Joe, can you elaborate a little more on what our thoughts are on the best way to, to measure CO2 emissions at the sovereign level? Sure. I think when we think about carbon intensity at the sovereign level, I think there's two key concepts to consider. So on the first of all, we need to calculate what a country's carbon emissions are. And then secondly, we need to work out how much of an impact they're having compared to any other country. So firstly, when we're calculating a country's carbon emissions... Developed markets have for decades been transitioning away from manufacturing towards services, you know, essentially offshoring their carbon emissions to emerging markets like China and Vietnam. But if China manufactures an Apple iPhone, is that a US or is that a Chinese carbon emission? You know, similarly, if you eat a Brazilian or an Argentine steak in a London or New York restaurant, is that an American or British emission or is that a Latin American one? You know, we take the view that the cattle would never have been reared if there wasn't demand for it. And so we think that these emissions should belong to the consumer of the product rather than the territory that it was produced in. And when we took a look at uh, a basket of developed markets and emerging market countries in our paper, we found that developed markets have outsourced approximately 10% of their carbon emissions through this process. And then secondly, how do you judge if one country is having more or less of an impact than the other? You know, media coverage often compares the absolute emission levels of countries of vastly different sizes. I mean, you'll see, you know, China and India are two of the three largest carbon emitters on an absolute basis. But combined, those two countries are home to nearly three billion people, you know, more than one third of the global population. So how do we make a, an honest apples with apples comparison here? There's two real ways. So if you want to adjust carbon emissions, you can either adjust them relative to the size of an economy so the GDP, or the size of the population. You know, when we were looking at the paper, we think that the recent attempts to adjust carbon emissions relative to the size of the economy are plainly wrong. You know, does a CEO of an S&P 500 company have the right to emit more CO2 than a paddy field farmer just because he's richer? I mean, clearly that's in direct violation of the principle of equity in the Paris Climate Agreement. You know, by using GDP, we're rewarding countries for being rich you know, implicitly allocates Norwegians 12 times the carbon budget of Nigerians. I mean, put aside the idea that it's inequitable, but it's not ever going to work in practice either. And and so do you think there's absolutely no role for GDP-based measures in carbon emissions? Well, you know, you're essentially saying that as long as you generate GDP growth from your carbon emissions, then it's okay. You know, Vietnam's emissions per capita have quadrupled in the last decade. I mean, do you think that the Marshall Islands or any other island economy vulnerable to climate change cares that they've remained constant in GDP-weighted terms? You know, and another example is, you know, oil-producing countries, you know, they see their emissions per GDP decrease when oil prices go up. So Saudi Arabia, for example, their emissions per GDP went down nearly 8% in 2018, when average oil prices rose from $54 a barrel to $71 a barrel. You know, I don't think OPEC needs another incentive to push up the price of oil. So the main conclusion of our paper is that we need to adjust carbon emissions relative to the size of the population. And here we see that 
emerging markets are barely impacting the planet at all, at least compared to developed markets. And we find that this tension is no more acute than in an example between Switzerland and South Africa. Shaq, could you elaborate on those two countries? Why, why did we, we choose those two jurisdictions? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, it's not a um, it's not a comparison that comes obviously to mind, is it? But um, you know, very stark contrasting economies. But we thought that it was the best sort of example to bring to drive home the message of the white paper. So I don't know how you guys think about um, or what you guys think about when we talk about carbon emissions and environmental aspects of ESG more broadly. But the first thing that pops into my mind is natural resource degradation and energy use and waste. South Africa has a bad rep on both these fronts, and it shows up in the data. On the other hand, when you think about Switzerland, you wouldn't associate Switzerland on either count. But as a producer of high-end luxury items and precision instruments, Switzerland relies heavily on the mining activities and resources of South Africa. And so that is the question, where should the attribution lie? In the, uh, in the paper, we, um, we go into this in, in more detail, and what we find is that if you look at South Africa's emissions on a territorial basis per GDP, per unit of GDP, South Africa's, you know, its carbon footprint is very high, whereas Switzerland ranks very favorably on this. But if you flip it to looking at units of carbon consumed, then you actually find that that ranking changes and Switzerland has a high carbon footprint. And we thought that was a very interesting um, compa- well, result that we wanted to share with people. Interesting. So despite its beautiful mountains and pristine lakes, Switzerland might actually be a, a, a bad actor in, in the carbon debate. So in, in 2015, the United Nations released its 17 SDGs. Sustainable development is, is always the objective. What does this mean in the context of carbon emissions in some of the world's poorest countries? Are there some basic development objectives which we think require increasing emissions? J- Joe, do you have any thoughts on the topic? Yeah, sure, Mark. I mean, unfortunately, sustainable development is becoming a bit of a, a catch-all phrase that's losing all meaning. You know, if we look at the, the UN Sustainable Development Goals specifically, you know, they're, they're, they're designed to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all. You know, looking through all 17 of them, there's two that are directly relevant to carbon emissions. You know, number seven specifically refers to affordable and clean energy. And number 13 specifically refers to climate actions. So I guess your question is, you know, how do we mobilize private sector capital to achieve these goals? And I think there's two ways that we can do that as sovereign debt investors. So firstly, I think on any new or or primary issuance, you know, we need to be allocating capital towards countries where the use of proceeds is towards sustainable development. So things like green bonds, sustainably linked bonds, they just need to be, and we are actively encouraging countries to issue these instruments. You know, I mentioned, you know, Angola, you know, if they were to issue a green bond to finance renewable energy projects, such as solar panels, you know, this paper's trying to be able to say to them that there's plenty more capital available for these sorts of projects as you try and diversify away from oil in a transition to net zero and that the capital's not going towards building another wind farm in Sweden. And then secondly, you know, in the secondary market, we have to be allocating capital to countries with low carbon intensities and encouraging them to stay on that path. 
And by the same token, we need to engage with high carbon intensity countries and say that unless they put together a plan to reduce emissions, they'll ha we'll have no choice but to take our money somewhere else, which over time will increase the co cost of capital for those countries, especially the ones that choose to keep their head in the sand. Great. Uh, turning to the topic of taking carbon out of the environment, tropical rainforests act as some of the world's largest carbon sinks and exist almost exclusively in developing countries. What role does protecting these sorts of environments have in, in our thought process? Shaq, is there any work that, that, that you've done on, on the topic? Yeah, so look, there's no denying that there's huge benefits to preserving the world's forests. Um, carbon sinking is one of them. And as you point out, some of the world's largest carbon sinks exist in developing countries. The benefits from preserving forestry uh, are maybe less tangible than the immediate gains that accrue, so the immediate developmental gains that accrue from trade and urbanization, and more difficult to measure, but this, all of this is changing. Creating awareness about the cost of deforestation is an area where we as a firm actively engage. And, um, and also, yeah, in the paper, we, we, we bring this point up and we discuss um, how Gabon um, has been acting as a carbon sink and, um, and has been compensated through various uh, international initiatives um, for that. So how do we think about paying countries to absorb CO2 emissions? Isn't there an element of this being uh, developed countries paying emerging markets to stay poor? So it can certainly work as a, uh, as a way to alleviate the trade-offs um, that emerging markets face when deciding on optimal environmental policy. Inasmuch as carbon sinking is a public service, it makes sense to have an international compensation structure. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a transfer from DM to EM. It could be intra-DM or intra-EM. It can work, um, it can work like carbon credits do. Obviously, this is easier said than done and requires a globally inclusive mechanism. But if done properly, um, I don't think it means that EM stay poor. Now we've, uh, touched upon primary, uh, sovereign debt markets, primary issuance. But most of the trading in emerging markets is obviously done in secondary markets. Are there any mechanisms by which the measurement of sovereign emissions will flow through to capital allocations in those secondary markets? And what I'm thinking of is uh, the the indices produced by J.P. Morgan and MSCI uh, and, and others, which drive a lot of the capital flows to emerging countries. So you're right, Mark. There is, um, there's now a growing field of um, ESG indices which are helping to um, direct capital um, to the right places. Um, without overgeneralizing, currently uh, the bulk of ESG investment strategies uh, are set up on an exclusion criteria and structured in a way that rewards low-carbon economies, or put more generally, rewards good governance and environmental practices both of which we know are endogenously correlated to one another. This comes across quite clearly in studies that have looked at spread compression versus ESG scores. Over the past few years, the, the E of ESG, so the environmental side of ESG, has started to show a stronger correlation um, with the degree of tightness in spreads. At EMSO, we are structuring our ESG strategy in a way that rewards the direction of travel. So if we think a country will sufficiently improve its ESG practices over a specified time frame, then we will look to direct capital towards it. 
And so what does this mean for, for countries that are heavily dependent on resource production and export? Are, are these sorts of countries going to be out of favor? Are they going to have difficulty accessing financing in the future? So that is a risk, right? Standard exclusion strategies make it difficult for these economies to secure financing if evaluated purely on ESG metrics. But this is where there is a role for green financing. Are there any innovative market-based mechanisms that you've seen? Yes, I'm really glad you asked that question, Mark. Um, We're seeing more and more developing countries exploring green bonds. For example, last year, Belize issued a blue bond to fund its efforts uh, at ocean conservation. Um, So, you know, there is an ongoing dialogue um, and increasing awareness that this could be a channel. um, And we think it's it's a growth area in the coming years. Great. So to round things up, Joe or Shaq, are there any examples that you'd like to cite of countries that are doing particularly well on the emissions front in, in emerging markets? Sure, Mark, I can take this one. The, the main takeaways of our paper are that we see China and India's carbon intensity increasing, but still comfortably below that of the US, OECD and Europe. You know, in the paper, we look at 19 developed market debt issuers and 21 large emerging markets. And we find if we use territorial carbon emissions per dollar of GDP, Switzerland, Sweden, Ireland, Denmark and France all score pretty well. And South Africa, China, Qatar, Russia and Saudi Arabia all score pretty badly. But when we make the adjustments that we've outlined in the paper, adjusting from territorial emissions to consumption and using per capita as opposed to per dollar of GDP, we find that the five best countries for carbon intensity are Nigeria, Pakistan, Philippines, India, and Colombia. And we find that the five worst countries are Qatar, UAE, Saudi Arabia, United States, and Canada. And we thought that was quite an interesting takeaway and not something that you would have expected to see uh, when you were originally going into the paper. And so we'd encourage people to take a look at the paper uh, and see if they agree with our conclusions. Great. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Shaq. Thank you, the audience, for listening to the MSO Talks podcast today. If you have any questions, please reach out to the investor relations team at MSO. Thanks, Mark. Cheers, Mark.